Well, welcome back. Uh, back to Money in the Tank Tankers. We've got Arnie back on deck from uh, the Recovery Bay uh, up <laughs> on sick leave last week, mate. I hope you put into HR for the sick leave for us. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, episode 41 today. So it was the big 4-0 last week, myself and Brad. And uh, now Brad, he's a man down today. Um, Brad's out, out of action. Hey, we just we keep on trucking at Money in the Tank, though. One of us falls and the other two... Keep, keep going. Next soldier up. So um, anyway, yeah, Joel Seeds, Principal Advisor, Harper LFG. Good to be with you all. Yeah, and Arnie, Finance Professional. Yeah, good yeah. to be back. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, back on deck today. So we want to do a nice, uh, short, sharp one for you guys today in terms of just the latest going on. So we've got a bit of up-to-date news to touch on. We've got Arnie going to touch on the Evergrande um, issues happening uh, overseas. And then we've got the RBA rates again on the rise, uh, what that means for uh, equities, property and the like. Um, and uh, yeah, more current news items. So uh, we've got a, a Rivkin quote and we've got some uh, pictures at the end as well. So um, let's hit it. Yeah, I've got a couple of Rivkin quotes here because we've, we've misplaced the book, but I'll just give you some from Google. The Bible. So the, it's actually the Bible. The Bible. Yeah, the money in the tank Bible. <laughs> <laughs> here's two. And we might have actually used these ones before, but here's one, which is when you love others, you aren't nervous, which I don't mind. It's not really market specific. And then two more from um, Rivkin. I hate the weekends because there's no stock market. Yeah. I'm sure we've all felt that way a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And last, lastly, I love the market. It is my work, my play, and my life. There you go. So, so he was a keen investor, Rivkin, obviously. Sometimes we have a laugh about some of his more outspoken um, quotes. Yes. But yeah, which no. The books, which the book's good for. So yeah. I've got to make sure I find that Bible again because uh, I'm sure I packed it in my bag the other day. But uh, and apologies for my mic today. I think I left my good Yeti mic at the office. I believe it's there. So uh, apologies for the mic situation. Hopefully it still sounds clear enough for you guys. Yeah, you sound good, Jolly. It's all good. Cool, cool. So, yeah, so today we thought we might touch on Evergrande part two because I know you and I, and I think potentially Brad as well, spoke about Evergrande last year in 2021 when it was, it was in the news a lot and people were worried about um, property developers in China, not just Evergrande, defaulting on their debt and what that, what that might mean for contagion risk in financial markets throughout the world and also um, what it might mean for banking like if there were to be another potential crisis that could be triggered by that. So, sorry, I said contagion in financial markets, but I meant contagion in all markets. And as was sort of seen at that point in time, I know you and I pointed out, Jolly, that miners in Australia, like BHP and Rio, uh, they took a big hit instantly in the market because there wasn't going to be as much supply um, being uh, sent over to China from those miners who were you know, providing the raw materials for the construction boom. And now it's back in the news because um, Evergrande and, and other big developers are sort of being hit by this three red line rule. And just, just to reiterate what the three red lines are, I've got them here just so I can uh, refresh everyone's memory. It's an asset to liability ratio. It must be greater than 70%. Net debt to equity ratio must be less than 100%. And your cash to short-term borrowings ratio must be less than one. So those were the rules put in place by the, the Chinese government to try and curtail the bubble in um, the property market in China. And we, we've actually, I've done a little bit of like research and I'll try and give you guys a very brief summary. And I've actually done this uh, research on YouTube. So you can go and get the full picture yourself. Um, Brad actually sourced a lot of it. And one of the main channels I sort of learned a lot of this from was one called Lay's Real Talk, L-E-I apostrophe S, Lay's Real Talk. So interesting history on uh, the Chinese model that they employ 
and how it sort of led to where we are now. So just in a nutshell, Joel, I'll quickly go through this. Back in the 90s, there was a tax sharing reform, 1904, uh, which made, so tax sharing between the local Chinese governments and the central government. And it basically meant that it was a bit of a mismatch because they shared revenues 50-50, but the local government had to shoulder like the burden of like the expenditures, more like 80% to 20. Uh, and that created one issue which made, mainly, mainly meant that the central government was in surplus every year, but local governments were running a deficit. And they were also charging the local governments with the GDP growth for China, um, which is meant to you know, sort of double every 20, 30 years. And then just to cap that off, to try and control it even more, the central government banned bond sales from local governments. So to get around this uh, banning of bond sales, the local governments created this um, workaround, which was to create things that they call local government financing platforms. Basically, what they do is they get a loan incapable institution, turn it into a company. The banks, the local banks, will give credit to those companies, which is kept off balance sheet. But there's an implicit government, like a local government guarantee of repayment. And then what they'll do is they'll use that, they will um, use land rights or issue land rights to those, those new companies. And with those certificates, they will finance infrastructure projects and then pay the loans through concession revenue. So this has caused an interesting like dynamic initially. And then when the 2008 crisis came about, the, the, uh, you know, the GFC, this sent borrowing into overdrive in China and the, the central government announced 4 trillion in stimulus, but only 1.2 to be provided by them, 2.8 to be provided from the local government. So loans took off through these vehicles, these LGFPs. Uh, one of the main issues here is that these are short-term loans, three to five years, but infrastructure projects, if they return any money at all, it's normally an average of seven to 10 years. So it's around the time when they went on an absolute building frenzy there in Japan. I remember they, um, they were just building infrastructure, just nonstop, it was huge. And well, things that's, that, yeah, there's, I remember a fund manager talk once that they were building these this infrastructure in these giant kind of cities, but there wasn't really the demand to have it there. They were just building for the sake of building for a while there, which is quite interesting. That's continued all the way up until last year, mate, until or even until 2020 when the three red lines were put in. Like there's examples of like cities building like thousands and thousands of reservoirs, for example, along their rivers when not that many reservoirs are needed. So they're only just doing it just to fuel the construction boom. Like you don't need that many reservoirs. Amazing, yeah. or, or even like new cities, like they're building massive new cities, which are sort of uninhabited just to keep the construction boom going. So there's a lot of stuff like that. But in regard to, um, in, in response to this crisis or this local debt crisis that was created, Beijing ended up reversing their decision and let these local governments uh, finance through bonds. But it was too late. Uh, as you can imagine. So now you've got sort of both um, of these issues playing out. And there's estimates by um, Goldman Sachs and others that it's around 52% of Chinese GDP is actually this hidden debt, this off this off balance sheet debt that the local governments have raised. So interesting. But then for the tankers out there, if you Google, just Google like some of China's cities that aren't inhabited or wasted infrastructure, and you'll probably find some pretty interesting stuff. I know they uh, I remember they gave me this fund manager saying they they almost, they also replicated some like overseas landmarks in these cities like you know uh, you know the, the Statue of Liberty or whatever it yeah. may be and they've done these random builds and they're just there for no real particular reason apart from just replicated and they've just been built. 
It's pretty wild. And in one of these videos, there's footage of um, like a Chinese economist who was American educated, Larry Lang. And he talks about how like he compares Detroit's crisis when they went bankrupt and they were $18 billion in debt. And he provides some figures which sort of show that there's at least, I think he's like around 30 approximately cities in China that are in as much debt. And he postulates that around 330 cities could be in as much debt. So he's saying that basically China might have 330 Detroits and nobody's really talking about it. Or maybe now they are, but they weren't back then. So what's fast, the, um, what's the yeah. Chinese government's stake in the main bank there? The, the, they've got, a, have they got a, a bit of a stake in the actual main bank of China. They definitely do. Everything's state-owned and controlled. I yeah. couldn't tell you what the stake is. Interestingly, another tidbit from this is that um, there's an interesting dynamic in China where there's no actual private land rights anymore in the 70, in 70s, like late 70s, they got rid of that. So if you want to own commercial or residential property in China, you actually just buy the right to use it off the government. And it's 40 years for commercial property. And then you have to pay, you know, a fee to keep using it and 70 years for residential. Again, if you want to maintain your house and still live there, if you're a family or whatever, you have to pay every 70 years to maintain the right to use that property. There's another country like uh, Singapore, I think does something similar to that, where there's a, you don't ever own the land outright. It's like a 99 year clause on there. Mm. It's an inter interesting model, but yeah. So fast forward to today, Joel, we've got these three red line rules and there's Evergrande, which is the, not the only property developer, but the main one in the headlines who have stopped construction in 2021 but on, on, on these um, projects, then resumed due to government intervention, but now stopped again. And there's reports that only one third of these are completed. So it's like 300 housing projects across 25 provinces have now decided to uh, boycott their mortgage payments because construction isn't continuing on these projects. And it's affecting these large developers. And the Chinese, or seven of the major Chinese banks have come out and said, there's no issue, we've looked at it. And this has been supported by certain Western banks like Jefferies and City, who have backed it up saying that the amounts are at, at risk of default are not of note. However, independent estimates in some of these videos have said that there's 4.5 trillion yuan or 665 billion USD in non-performing loans, which is 12% of the total mortgage balance in China. And there's estimates of another 6 trillion yuan foreclosures across China. So that's over 1 trillion or 28% exposure to the, uh, the total Chinese mortgage balance, which is 9% of GDP. And that's getting worse year over year. So that's current. And then could be worse. So in a nutshell, that's the basic um, lay of the land of what's happening. And I guess what isn't known, which is what you and me can, you and I can postulate on is what are the outcomes of this? Is there going to be another 2008 style banking crisis if there's huge debt defaults in commercial and residential property? How exposed are other countries to this huge debt burden? I don't know, Jolly, it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's a great rundown, Arnie, and uh, I was actually just getting a bit of information up on, uh, on my phone here too, but, um, you know, the if they are already having issues, you know, what we we broached this topic and we spoke about it probably six months ago now, uh, and inflation issues have only intensified a little bit more, you know, since then, um, you know, it makes sense that potentially they're going to experience more and more dramas. So, I think this won't be the last time we maybe speak about this topic, Arnie. What do you think? No, I definitely think it's something to keep an eye on. And if 
if we do see huge delinquencies in these mortgage repayments and then these projects do not go ahead, it in turn means property developers like Evergrande will not be able to finance their own obligations and repay their debts. And then that will in turn affect any institution that's extended them credit, which in, which we don't know how much exactly, but will include Western financiers. So I know a little while ago, maybe last year, <clears throat> Jay Powell said that he looked at Evergrande, the Evergrande crisis, and determined that American um, institutions weren't super exposed to it. But then again, you've got like things like uh, any of the any of the raw materials provided by Australia, steel, for example. Or, or other countries, which is not going to be flowing in this great amounts to China. So, mm. yeah, I, I think it's one to keep an eye on. Obviously, we don't want to see a huge um, financial crash like we saw in 2008. It's bad for everyone, especially in the difficult times that we're already in. It would just be like black swan on black swan on black swan with a pandemic and then a war and now potentially this. So one to keep an eye on, Jolly. But I don't, I don't know what the outcome is. Maybe we can ask Brad to sort of expand upon that when he gets back, but it's something to something to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll definitely keep you guys posted in terms of where that goes to. Um, and we're going to update, I guess, um, and thanks for the rundown on that, uh, Evergrande, Arnie. Um, we're going to run down, I guess, just the latest um, things coming out from the markets and also the RBA rates as well. So we spoke last week that uh, with Brad that uh, the federal, uh, the Fed uh, in America has raised their rate by 75 basis points and then, the RBA came out on uh, Tuesday, so the first Tuesday of each month uh, in Australia here, and they've raised their rate by 50 basis points. So it's now up at a 1.85%. So uh, essentially it's been pushed up. I think there was a, a, a thought pattern that most most economists, and we've spoken about economists, you know, just flying with the wind as to what they think is going to happen. And uh, most economists, uh, you know, thought a 50 basis point rise was going to be the case. Um, I think there was a, there was a, a decent way to say maybe it was going to be a 40 basis point rise, but essentially they've moved it higher um, and they've placed a high priority there on returning the um, inflation rate to the two to three percent range over time, whilst keeping the economy on an even keel from the notes from the RBA governor, Philip Lowe. Um, so the path to, achieve, path to achieve the balance is a narrow one and clouded with uncertainty, they say. So not least because of global developments, which we've spoken about as well. So the outlook for global economic growth has been downgraded due to pressures on real incomes from higher inflation and the tightening of monetary policy in most countries. So that means raising the interest rate in most countries, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the COVID containment measures in China. So inflation essentially is, um, you know, it's front of mind. I did read an article um, suggesting the other day uh, from Philip Lowe coming out saying they haven't set the agenda for the rest of the year by doing you know, 50 every single month. They're going to do it as a case by case basis, month on month, and see um, how those implementations of tightening of the monetary policy then flows through to um, the, the real GDP and the inflation numbers, essentially. There was some news that came out from Bullard, uh, who's a member of you know, the Fed, and he was saying that he wants to see their interest rates up around high threes to 4%. I think, I don't know if you said by the end of this year, maybe by the end of next year, but I think it was by the end of this year. And that would be another 150 basis points. So yeah. uh, with the next, there's, there's three more meetings till the end of the year. Yep. So you could hypothesize that they're going to raise rates by 75, 50 and 25 at each meeting, or maybe they'll do 50, 50, 50. Yep. But I would suspect they'll probably front, front end it and put the higher one next to try and... Um, 
increase the demand destruction that they want that they're seeking to try and fix the inflation problems. So I'll probably fact, go I'll probably go against you on that one because I reckon they were tinkering with the idea of maybe being a little bit lighter in this one. So potentially. I reckon next one will be maybe a, a 50. I don't know whether they'll go to 75. Um, mm. I think they want to sort of see the 50s, how they get pushed into the economy and how that impacts. Um, so, yeah, so I don't reckon they'll get as high as a 75. I reckon the, the Fed's probably got another another one in it. But, yeah, I, I just think... Um, oh, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the Fed, not, oh, our, not the Reserve Bank of Australia, sorry. sorry. So I think, I think the American Fed, will. I think it's likely they'll do 75, 50, right, 25. Gotcha. With yep. regard to our Reserve Bank of Australia, I agree yep. with you, Jolie. I think they'll do 50, see how it plays out, and, yep. then, and then monitor the situation. So... Yep, yeah. So but I do think... I do think we've got another three rate. Like I think every time America rises, I think our Reserve Bank will follow suit because they have to, as we've talked about. So, yep. So yeah. So let's just keep an eye out for that. So essentially, inflation is expected to peak later this year, which they forecast at maybe around the seven and three quarter percent, um, and then uh, hopefully they're suggesting that it's above a little above four percent over twenty three, and then back around the three percent mark in. 2024 so it's a long time away um for it to get back but that's what they you know they talk about um about that short-term pain um of inflation to have the long-term gain because they don't want it to get out of hand spot on mate so that's we'll, we'll watch so, that yeah, space definitely and... watch that space um i guess some of the other you know interesting ones that that have come with that is you know all the the, the media and all the hype up about markets and all the hype up about um yeah, stock markets and property as well so you know, as we spoke about last week with Brad, the, the stock market is very forward reactionary. You know, the, the first six months of the year has been a, a bad time in the stock market because, um, you know, investors and institutions and hedge fund managers and your day, you know, day traders less so, but they can sort of see the writing on the wall as to what's transpiring and they'll, they'll sell down on anticipation of these things coming to fruition. Um, uh, and they're almost like, you know, forward thinking predictive in terms of, what they're essentially seeing. And then you'll start to see, you know, rises occur once they start to see you know, the dark skies disappearing, the, the gray clouds starting to come out and the, the sky starting to open up a little bit. They'll, they'll be forward reactionary. So sometimes by the time, you know, you make a change in something, you're a bit too late because the market's already, you know, forward back to that in by six months. That's right, man. I guess who knows what's going to happen like as we just sort of mentioned if there is a huge crash because of contagion risk out of china well that's going to be very deflationary so you know yeah. it might we'll see we'll see what happens in that space but um, the other one i was going to mention arnie while i'm just on the, the market was just the you know interesting um bit of data that, that sort of come across the desk is just in terms of australia historically uh, in the housing market um how that's gone in um, higher interest rate environments or higher inflationary environments. So I thought the listeners might be interested to know a little bit about that. Um, so Australia's experienced four recessions over the past 50 years. Evidence confirms that at least out of two out of the eight capital cities, plus oodles or a lot of regional locations, produced double-digit house price growth during each of Australia's recession years, which is an interesting tidbit there. Um, so a recession, technical recession, is two negative quarters of GDP um, consecutive. Um, and there's a difference between uh, the broader national economy producing negative growth in two consecutive quarters, so which I mentioned then. Um, so the, the other one was, uh, uh, I was just gonna mention as well, was 
Um, so the, the article suggests here, contrary to the age-old suggestion that house prices can't keep rising without <laughs> wages growing just as much, the evidence potentially suggests otherwise as well. So over the past five decades, the nation's medium house price tripled in the 70s, increased by 158% in the 80s, 72% in the 90s, 146% in the 2000s, and the leanest decade was the 10 years ending to 2020, 48% growth, um, while house prices <coughs> already increased by 43% during the first two and a half years of the current decade. So uh, it's interesting that, you know, inflation, you know, things will still grow uh, even, even if inflation is higher. Um, and then one of the biggest myths in property markets is that real estate values can't increase when interest rates are rising. So the history books will show multiple areas when it's occurred. So the national house price tripled in the 70s at a time when the standard variable home loan was, went from six and a half to 10%. And home loan rates, rates consistently increased through the 80s from 10 to 16.8. So maybe, um, you know, I was probably too young for them and some of the listeners <laughs> will be too young, but interest rates did get that high. But house prices more than doubled in that decade. And the most recent era when the house prices again doubled in just six years to 2008, um, home loan incre uh, rates increased from 6.3 to 9.5. Now, it's not necessarily that we'll get back to those higher interest rates because we're just in a different environment now than we were you know, many, many years ago. But it just sort of shows that uh, markets can actually still do fine uh, even when inflation is potentially high or interest rates are going up. Yeah, it's a really good point. And yeah, with like just caveat there as jolly sort of mentioned at the end when you've got home prices going in the 70s from 20 grand or you know 10 grand to 20 grand to 20 grand to 40 grand and then the 90s maybe 40 to 80 80 to 160 it's a lot easier for those huge percentage moves that joy was talking about but then i was surprised by some of the percentage gains you were saying jolly in the early 2000s and then even 48 percent 2010 because as we know house prices everywhere especially in the major East Coast cities are very large. So to see large increases like that still um, is massive. But I do, even though that like, it's interesting data you've pointed out and that has been a trend, I still, I do think that house prices will come down um, because of the rising cost of living and the rising cost of mortgage repayments at the moment. So We'll it's see just, where it all goes. Yeah, yeah so, interesting. And a couple I, of the major cities like Melbourne and Sydney have started to come off a little bit already. So I got um, some, I got some rapid fire news if you want. Yeah, far away. Let's do it. I'm going to start with the top of the one, which is that uh, Tesla has their annual. Oh, drink. Drink <laughs> they, got, <laughs> uh, they got their annual general meeting. Uh, I think it's I think it's tonight or today in 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 America's time, and they're going to be uh, discussing all things Tesla, but also the fact that they're going to be doing a stock split. That, that, that has been reported uh, pretty widely. Here's a few other ones. So we've got um, China set to begin effective Taiwan blockade hours after Pelosi concludes visit. There's a live fire drill encircling the island will block flights and shipping. Uh, so they're set to begin this effective blockade. Yeah, which is uh, crazy to me. Have you been following this Pelosi news with her? Yeah, so I, I saw it come across the desk this morning from our market update, and they, you know, they were threatening and they weren't happy with her visiting Taiwan. Um, but I didn't hear about the blockades. So the blockade is to do with the is it the shipping containers only? Air and shipping. Air and shipping so yeah. I, I think that maybe they're trying to keep her in Taiwan because she's concluded the visit. Yeah, well, I don't know what they're trying to do. Um, there's been a Russian strike force apparently taking aim at uh, Zelensky's hometown. 
Uh, so that's just some news from what's happening in the law there. Um, back with Nancy Pelosi, her husband, Paul, has pled not guilty over his driving under the influence crash. So he's the one who's been accused of uh, trading off insider information because I don't know if you've kept up with the CHIPS Act, but the CHIPS Act in America was passed to do with semiconductor production in America. And there was speculation that uh, Paul Pelosi, Nancy's husband, has been buying calls in certain chip makers like NVIDIA ahead of that uh, act being confirmed or announced that it was going ahead, which will result in massive spending in that, um, in that market for, uh, for those companies. So that's an interesting one. Uh, and that's about all I've got at the moment, Jolly. I, I, will, I will mention one bit of crypto news that um, Solana and USDC, there's been a hacking scandal where private wallets have been drained and it's been phantom wallets that have been like six months dormant. So just keeping carrying the torch while Brad's away. I'm not super across this news, but Probably yeah. very proud of you, mate. It's a, little bit, it's, it's a little bit worrying to hear that, you know, there's like these private wallets that have been hacked and it sounds like it's Solana specific. So I don't know what the cause is. We can ask Brad what the we cause might have is. To get, uh, might have to get Brad to do some investigation in for uh, next week's pod and that'll tell us whether he listens to this pod in full. So Brad, if you're <laughs> listening, we, we expect a full run down on that, mate. <laughs> Anyway, that's it, man. So yeah. we've got relatively quick one this week, but we got you got a 50-50 for us? Yeah, I guess. And the last one was just really quickly is the market update today was um, the rebound in July. So uh, the, the market's rebounded pretty well the past few weeks now. And it's sort of saying investors have shaken off worries that, you know, the US had potentially already fallen into recession. So it sort of sent traders back to some of the beaten down stocks. So you know, just talking a bit about that before, interestingly enough, that the markets are sort of reacting, um, you know, fairly quickly at the moment in terms of how things are shaping up. And, you know, we've seen the Australian market pick up the last few weeks and have its best month. And then the Australian market as well has also picked up too. So, um, yeah, just keep an eye on how, how things track over the coming weeks. And um, I'm sure there'll be more to, to come from the market movements as well. But um, that's just a bit of a market update for you guys also today. Cheers, Joey. So, yeah, in terms of the 50-50 this week, Arnie. So, um, yeah, and uh, where can listeners get at us if they've got a good 50-50 they want to uh, touch on or they want to, uh, they yeah. want to vote on? Uh, yeah, get, get us on question the, and answers as well. Yeah, get us on the socials for Q&A or any 50-50. So it's at Money in the Tank, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are not active on any of them because that's my fault but we'll have to get more active on them facebook's the best one to get us on or your yeah, YouTube, yeah. youtube comments yep yep absolutely so hit us up uh, any questions you want us to touch on more than happy to to chat about or any topics you want to touch on too so um yeah appreciate uh, all the uh, listeners feedback it's always great uh in terms of um who do you do this week so it's for my uh my own personal experience at the moment i've just bought some airpods that i've been loving uh, mm. using the past the past couple of months now. So Apple, feel free if you want to throw some uh, sponsorship at the Money in the Tank podcast, you can uh, feel free to. <laughs> um, but the question is, do you prefer the AirPods or the, the big kind of Dre Beat type setups um, when you know walking or going to the gym or whatever you're doing? What do you prefer? I always have over the ear, like headphones, not, not this big, but I, I, I like those because I feel like they're more secure if I'm walking or going to the gym or anything like that. Because, yeah, the, the, the in-ear non-connected ones, which I have used, I just feel like they're always going to fall out or they mm. just don't feel secure. Maybe it's mm. my ear. Maybe it's the, my ear hole. It's a weird shape. I don't know. 
Possibly, yeah, <laughs> possibly. Um, yeah, I, I did. The, the, the tips they come with aren't that nice. I've got some foam ones that are a bit, bit softer on the ears. And uh, yeah, I used to love the the dry beats, but I don't know if it's a new thing or whatnot. But I've really enjoyed the the AirPods lately, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the pods. Um, do, you, do you like being unencumbered? Because that is one yeah, thing that when yeah. you're when you're doing something, it does feel. And if you start to sweat or whatever, yeah, it can correct. feel it can feel yuck. So I can yeah. imagine that the pods would be better in that sense. Definitely, yeah, but definitely, I'll, and a bit of bit of fresh air as well going into your face and your ears. Sometimes you get a bit hot at the gym or you know whatever you're working out. So I, I like that too. Mm. Um, but yes, I must admit. They are potentially very losable. Um, I got off the train last night because I had a training thing in the city and I was wearing a mask on the train as you do and I took it off as I got out of the train station and it just flicks my pod. Uh, the One of the buds comes out and literally almost falls down the gap in the staircase. I wouldn't have been able to get it. So it would have been oh, done. No. I wonder how done. much... How much money do you reckon Apple makes on just replacing like one single pod each time? There must oh, be like sure. a, a pod replace. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into that. <laughs> I love it. So um, anyway, but uh, and I think there's an app you can get to help you when you lose them. So it's inevitable. I will lose them. Don't know how long it'll take. It's been a couple of months now, so I'm, I'm having a good run. But yeah. Keeps updated. So yeah. So uh, hit us up, listeners. Any good 50-50s you've got or what do you prefer more? Um, and uh, yeah, we uh, always enjoy the questions and uh, we'll probably come back to you guys next week as well. So um, yeah, keep hitting us up and keep uh, firing those questions away. We love it. That's a great 50-50, Jolie. Love it. All right. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, guys. Cheers, tankers. Bye.